So tell me a little bit about this this clinical stuff you're doing. Each semester, we are um, assigned a essentially like an area of nursing. So for my third year, um, I got assigned pediatrics, which is with children for my first semester, uh, first one. However, this one's also split up between pediatrics and obstetrics, which is like delivering babies and stuff, which I am terrified for. Um, I was explaining it to Daryl because he just had a child, um, what it would be like, um, just imagining that whole experience that he went through and now imagine me being there. And he was like, that should be illegal. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm interested to see how that one will go, but so far pediatrics has been amazing. The children have been really good. One thing that did take me for a surprise is that we now have like screens right in the cribs. What are these screens doing? Like just playing like Paw Patrol and stuff like that. <laughs> what? Yeah. <laughs> How old are these kids? Like two. So this one is my um, peds and obstetrics rotation. Then next semester is my high acuity. And that's generally perceived to be my toughest semester in nursing. So that's when... Um, the cases are more serious and people are in a lot um, worse condition. They wouldn't have us in like the ICU or anything like that, but it's like the patients that you're getting are a lot more in need of help. You're also given a lot more patients. Yes. So how many do you have right now? Right now I have two, two children. Keep in mind in pediatrics, three is the most I think a regular nurse will have because with children, you have to be constantly checking in with them. Their, uh, their condition can deteriorate super fast. So you got to be... Um, compared to an adult. Compared to an adult. So like even... I, w- I was surprised to find out even if I like give someone like a, a bath, I have to be hyper conscious of their temperature after because the water on their skin will suck all that temperature out. And if they're already having problems, that can go really bad really quickly. So yeah, so like even just those little things. And then so I've got two patients. This one, we go to four next um, for the high acuity. And then... Um, my last one will be my mental health rotation and that will either be at the prison or, um, the Dubai center. All right. So what rotations have y'all done so far? My very first rotation was in long-term care and that was, um, just palliative care, keeping people happy. Um, at, at that point, um, the perspective changes because you go from, uh, well, the hospital, the hospital setting in which like you're, you're treating everything. Now we're just trying to keep people as comfortable as possible in that time. So even like example, like our typical, like drug ranges, for example, or drugs we might commonly use, wouldn't use in this situation now become available to us because we're just trying to keep people, um, happy and healthy as long as we can. Really? So what was unavailable before? Uh, so example, uh, Dilaudid which is like our pain medication, you you tend to give in like higher doses than what you'd normally see in like the hospital setting. And then even just our goals. So example, if someone has a, a broken hip is a good example. Broken hip is generally people are going to deteriorate quite fast after a broken hip because they're no longer mobile. Um, mobility is a huge aspect when it comes to your health. So once that isn't uh, available to you, people deteriorate. So just... Example, if a 40-year-old were to have a um, fallen broken hip, it's very different than how uh, we treat someone who is in a long-term care home um, and is uh, essentially uh, 
They're near the end. They're near the end is how to put it. And they, they're aware of that. You can check their um, long-term orders on kind of what they've decided um, to be available to us. Speaking of which, we're changing that system up. I believe there used to be just four options i think it was like call a code but then don't like intubate i think it was and then two other options now i think we're up to seven so we're really trying to expand and give people the most amount of options as possible oh they only had four options of levels of care before yes um in in the final stages of uh life so the patient decides this yes 100% patient decides it where it can get messy is if your power of attorney gets passed over to your family because now that can create conflict because even though let's say like the one uh, person's daughter for example has power of attorney and she wants to have her on full code well maybe the family feels that that's just not um, respectful anymore oh what's full code so what's the level Full code is i'm gonna try and keep you alive no matter what okay so that's at the top that's at the top that's like we're gonna try every single procedure possible Um, And then I think it goes all the way down to obviously um, do not resuscitate in which if I come to wake you up in the morning and you're not breathing, we'll just call it there. That's one thing we just discussed in my counseling class uh, this week. Movies and stuff like that. Like example, they have like the person like laying there on the bed with the machine beeping, beeping, beeping. They're like, I think we should pull it. In reality, it's very different. In reality, every like 30 minutes, someone's coming in to do chest compressions in which they're breaking more and more ribs. And it's quite to keep someone alive, especially when they're in a very um, deteriorated state. It's very, it's a very um, difficult thing to watch. In the movies, they show person laying there peacefully. Yeah. When peacefully. in reality, somebody's in re- coming in every 30 minutes every and giving th- you chest compressions to keep that heart keep going. Keep you alive. Um, yeah, like it can be, it can be quite brutal, um, especially like as people get older, and then that becomes the moral question of at what point do you call it? And that's what we were discussing in our counseling class, because um, especially once when, when it comes to people's children, that's a that's a tough decision. And if I have to come in and put this child in more pain every, I say thirty minutes, but it could be thirty minutes, could be every four hours, like to try and keep this person alive, it can be quite tough. And traumatizing. Yes. For both parties, though, mm-hmm. for you and the patient. And the patient and the parents who now have to um, sit there and watch this. Um, yeah, it can be it can be rough. So what was the conclusion in the counseling class? The conclusion that I came to, because it's ethics, so everyone has different standings, and when that's in question, you should consult the Canadian Code of Ethics. So we have a, like an 89-page document uh, for ethics and nursing for Canadians. Um, you can consult that. If there's more dilemma, uh, the hospital does have an ethics committee, which is essentially a couple of lawyers who will look at legally you have to do this this and this if you want to abstain from this we can understand we can like move you to a different patient or something like that um what i understood when it comes to ethics with children um ultimately um especially when it's in pediatrics or obstetrics for example you're the patient um and the mom oftentimes are both the clients so, like, example, if, if I'm an obstetrics and the mom just delivered the baby and the baby's born stillborn, um, in which it's not um, alive, both 
um, parties are my patients. And I have to consider that when making a decision. Um, once we get into pediatrics with just children, I'm going to educate the parents as best as I can, but that is their child and they should uh, have the right to make the decision around that. Eventually, if it gets to a point, like I believe this was a actual um, clinical example with like a small child and parents, I just keep wanting to call code. You have to consult uh, the legal team and pretty much they all determine what is possible and what's going to happen with that. Oh, so if you believe you've gone too far, you'll consult another panel? To I'll, see. I'll consult. For, I'll always start with my own colleagues. Because I'll just be like, hey, like I don't, I don't know if I'm quite comfortable with this. Um, if you guys can't come to like an agreement, then go see a doctor. Doctor doesn't doesn't know either. Then we can consult our ethics. Ethics, because there, there's many grayish areas. An 89 page document really doesn't cover very much in terms of ethics, believe it or not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then if that comes down to it, and we still just can't come to a, essentially, what you're trying to do is make this gray area black and white and it's extremely hard to do and eventually you'll just need to bring in lawyers to determine what needs to happen i've been so lucky that i haven't been in any of these situations um but it happens. but you've learned about him mm -hmm. yeah what's the best rotation you've done yet i loved med surge um at ruh <clears throat> Um, so the floor that I was on was actually patients that were borderline. So they just had like a massive surgery, um, and they were either going to get sent to long-term care or they were going to, um, go home. So it was a very definitive moment in their life of kind of what was going to go on. And I loved it. So I, I always like to tell this one story. I had a patient, um, I'm I'll keep it quite brief. Um, but essentially it was bedridden for like the last like two or three months. And, um, we were able to get them up and walking within two days. So to put it in perspective, we had the first day when I was there, we had already had a meeting with CPAS, which is this great, um, group of people that help determine whether people are fit for long-term care or not, because that's a certain portion of that's like government covered. And so we got to have a certain criteria they go through. And because, uh, this patient was unable to move, uh, it was very clearly they're going to go to long-term care. There wasn't very much debate over it. Now that day, also the brother had come in. And I'd spoken with them and just something clicked in my head that I think this patient can do a lot more than what we've asked of them. So then I just kind of started pushing. We started very light, just trying to like sit themselves up in bed. And the patient was amazing in which they never like quit on themselves. And within, by the end of the shift, I was able to get PT to come in and we were getting them cleared for um, assist times too. What's assist times too? Uh, so they can they can walk, but you just want two people there in case it goes wrong. This patient went from three months bedridden mm -hmm. to up and walking in two days. Yes. Which drastically changed their life outcome because I think that individual was, let's say, 80-ish. So it was very much like they could spend the next 20 years in long-term care or... Um, go home and I never got to check in after that because obviously once your shift's done that's no longer your patient their information's private I can't like go and look up uh 
how they're doing now. But if I had to guess, I would hope that they're now home with their family. So what made it so they could walk in those two days after three months of not doing anything? You literally start from the basics. So um, I had, they got these water containers. They're about one liter water containers. I literally would just have them pick it up, pick it up. and No, but what made it so they couldn't be walking before? Oh, um, if I, I believed we were giving too much of a certain medication. And that isn't um, on the doctors or anything, just like certain people absorb more or less medication. And I think that was creating a toxicity. Um, I can't go too in depth because it is like a, like a, yeah, it's confidential. Gotcha. It's confidential. It's if I, and the disease is so, is, is r- this situation is so rare that someone could probably figure it out. So I'll keep it. Yeah. I'll yeah. Keep it okay. to that. We'll, mo- we'll move on. We'll yeah. move on. But um, the actual me- medical surgical floor, I absolutely, um, it was just super awesome because it was very much that deciding factor. Um, another thing that surprised me is dementia. Dementia, from my long-term rotation and my med surge rotation, I think by the time you hit 80, if well, I'd say it's one in every two people. Yeah, like it, it's rough. But that's from what you've seen. From what I've seen, keep in mind it's a hospital setting. Yeah, obviously, so, obviously, eighty-year-olds outside walking about. I'm not the healthy ones. I'm not seeing. Um, it makes sense though, because fifty percent of the people that you are seeing in the hospital would have dementia. Mm-hmm. But it's not fifty percent of the seniors we're seeing out and about have mm-hmm. dementia. Mm-hmm. Okay. That that was just so surprising to me because essentially you go how you come into this world is very similar to how you go out in the later in the later stages of dementia. You're just kind of sitting there it's uh, i don't know why help me is a super common phrase so they'll just be sitting there all day help me help me it's very heartbreaking um especially i can imagine to the loved ones of these people because you knew that person like and now they're they're just not themselves um so that can be super super rough for everyone involved so what's your role when you're handling dementia patients um so there's just different stages, um, and we assess that through level of consciousness. So I walk in. Um, one of the first things I do, I just do my safety checks, uh, making sure everything, all my machines are working. And then um, one of the first questions, I, I look at the patient, I run through my ABCs, and then I assess level of consciousness. So first off, are they like awake and are they looking at me? Because some people um, can't even open their eyes. Um, so then after that, then we have three general questions. Who are you? Where are you? And what day is it? And obviously you have to adjust this to patients. So asking a three-year-old um, what day is it is a little ridiculous. You might be able to ask them what month if they're in like grade two or three. But um, with those, with children, it comes down to just like, are they alive? Are they awake? Are they smiling? Are they, do they seem to be happy if not? But these two year olds don't have dementia. These two year olds, sorry. I also do level of conscious assessments on children, but with, um, older people, yes. Just where, uh, where are they? Who are they? And what day is it? Now, this is where it also gets interesting is we have people trying to essentially, if they've been through healthcare a lot and they've had these questions asked to them a lot, they can actually have quite onset dementia and just be able to remember those three things oh they can rattle that off yeah they're like i will i'll actually walk into the room and they'll just tell me those three and i'll be like okay check yeah but then as the day goes on and you talk to them you'll notice 
just just things will be off. So what's off? What have you noticed before? I'll just be talking to someone and then they'll just go on like a total like oh. left curve. I'll be like, oh, I'm here for your medications. And then they'll be like, I'm going to the grocery store. <laughs> <laughs> and in the, those cases, all you can do is just reorient them into reality. So you just be like, no, you're not going to the grocery store. You're at X hospital. You're here for this. And that's just all you can do. So you're trying to give them mm -hmm. the information of where they're at, what's happening. Mm -hmm. Just just so that they, they're aware. They're, and then they're also then, they know that something's not right, too. Because that's um, a big factor in it. Because if someone doesn't know they have dementia, that's when you get situations in which people are, like, walking around in the middle of the street. And so if that at least if they're semi aware that something's not going right, they'll be a little more conscious to stuff. How do like they that. normally react when you tell them they have dementia? Confusion. So it's confused. Um, oftentimes that confusion leads to anger. Um, so that's why, like example, patient a lot of patient conflict, like in terms of like patients trying to hit you and stuff like that, um, that comes from that confusion. Um, I've, I uh, haven't had two crazy of incidents, but I did have one lady try and like claw me. <laughs> um, and then another time we did have to call security and, uh, you had to restrain them, restrain them. Um, we no longer use restraints anywhere as common as what they used to be. Um, so there's a, your physical restraints, environmental restraints, and chemical restraints. So the physical restraints, that's like. The straight jacket. We don't use that anymore. We have a similar kind of thing where we essentially tie you to the bed. Um, no one enjoys that process. It's not fun for them. Poor security guards that have to do it. Um, and that's our last option. If we have any other option, um, we, we go to that. Um, then chemical restraints, I don't believe are even... Those were like a thing in like the 80s where like you just like give someone a, a dose of something and then they'd be like sleepy and tired of for the rest of the day. Um, we don't we don't sedate people anymore because of their um, because of mental health just isn't good. They used to do it um, a lot of stuff, but it's we, been phased out. It's been phased out. Okay. Um, and then environmental restraints in terms of like closing the door or something like that so that they can't leave. We don't like to do that on a room to room basis. So we have example on MedSurge, we had a unit three, which all it did was has had a locked door as you went into the unit. So they could, oh, the, so the whole unit, the whole unit has was locked. one door that's locked, but yes. all the individual rooms are unlocked. Unlocked, and people can move freely. They had like a TV set up, so people would just come sit and watch. That that was a really good idea, because if you're like locking the door on people, you now now no longer can I see the patient. So I don't know if they've gone up and they're about to fall. Maybe they're having a seizure. Who knows what could be going on in there. Um, but I really think that that was the best possible option in term of, terms of restraint. When you were handling dementia patients, mm -hmm. what was the best case you've seen and what was the worst case? Um, worst case is, uh, think of it like a broken record. Um, so it's just like someone's just sitting there and it's helped me. And then you'll be like, what can I help you with? And then it'll just be like, help me. And that, that's, that's as far of a thought that people can get to. 
Um, and it's quite sad because obviously now you're in a constant stage of like fearfulness and yeah, it's, it's quite sad. Um, the, uh, best case situation, honestly, it's just people in good health. If you're, if you're over 80 years old and, uh, you don't have dementia, you're doing good. Chances are if you, I think if you get hit 90, the chances of you like getting it at all then are quite limited dementia is quite a blanket term so we actually have quite a few different health problems that are classified under dementia could be anywhere from like speech problems basic memory problems all the way to like um that's when you get into like your alzheimer's and all that um oh so full-on you don't remember the day Mm -hmm. you don't remember who you are Mm -hmm. and the other one is slight speech problems Mm -hmm. so what's a slight speech problem um, so like you're talking, uh, I've experienced this when I've had, con- uh, concussions to where it feels like, um, in your brain, it's just alphabet soup and you're like trying to pull together the right letters. But if you were to just speak r- without thinking out your sentence, it just comes off as like babbling. <laughs> oh, yeah. So with these patients, the ones that are screaming, help me mm-hmm. at you. How are you handling this? It, it, it can be extremely straining. Um, I remember that my very first shift or the very first shift in long-term care in which I had a patient like that. It was at the top of their lungs from the moment they woke up to the moment they went to bed. So I eventually, uh, it, it, it was really tough on me emotionally because this, this is a full grown adult screaming this at the top of their lungs. Um, then I think eventually she had two sentences. It was help me. And then if I could be like, hey, what can I help you? She says, I'd want to go home. Which is, yeah, that's tough too. It's like, I, I want, I would love to take you home and you could just live your life. But that's not the current situation. And then um, she would start crying when we had to like. So then at that point, after a couple times like that, well, now you have to change up your strategy. Because direct confrontation is not working there. So now you have to redirect. So um, rather than telling her, no, we can't go home, telling her, okay, someone's going to come pick you up in 20 minutes. Now, obviously, this patient won't remember that in 20 minutes. um, But that's better than having them just be in this constant state of, I can't go home. They're not letting me go home. But dementia is tough. Dementia is a tough one. How are you bringing yourself back from a tough shift uh jim's obviously a great one um i've i've been lucky enough to where i've not had like two rougher patients back to back so like you know i mean like in terms of like a bad shift and then going on into another bad shift because some people i'm I'm like example i think if you work in the er they've been really going through it right now with like covid and then um it's just so a, it's grinding you down. Yeah, shift by shift by shift. <laughs> and I think that's why you're seeing like a lot, especially people in those high, more high acuity situations. Um, I think you're seeing a lot of retirements, uh, a lot earlier retirements. Uh, I think COVID really took it out of a lot of people, even people that are younger, um, that right when they got out and started working, it was COVID. That took a lot out of them. Um, it's just a tough time to be in healthcare. Yeah. So what made you decide you want to get into healthcare? Um, I don't have a, I don't have a great reason. I'm just happy I did. Um, I've really enjoyed it because my first year I hated, I went into my first year and I thought, 
I need to get out of this. I was, I got waitlisted. I, so I finished up my first year. I had applied into nursing, but I had gone waitlisted. And I hated my first year so much. If that didn't work out, I wasn't going back. So I had begun the process of like sending my papers in for the military and looking at other options. And luckily enough, it was Kobe who looked at me and he goes, I think that would be the worst decision of your life. And so I held off of it. And I think I was one of the last people accepted. Or I, I would have been the last person accepted because the next day was my orientation. Yeah. So what like made it, you hate it so much? My first year? Yeah. Um, essentially... Well, they're just trying, they're trying to weed you out and you very much feel it. So I'll use a perfect example. My chemistry professor, I just wrote my first midterm. It didn't go well. I had a 90, like seven in high school chemistry for grade 12. So I don't understand where this gap of knowledge, like, like in a month I went from a excelling chemistry student to, I just got a 50 on the midterm. So then I'd, I'd email the prof. I was super kind. Um, sent him like a two paragraph thing like, Hey, I'm having problems with this, 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 and this, what would you recommend? Do you know any good tutors? If not, are you available? Like when's your office times, he responded back to me in one sentence. There's nothing I can do for you. I remember actually taking a picture of it and sending it to my mom. Cause it was like, yeah. And, and looking at the professor at the time, all classes were online. I'm sure they weren't happy with their current situation and with the online classes they piled kids in because it's online you don't need you don't have physical restraints anymore so like my bio class i had 1200 kids in my professor was a first year first year professor oh man yeah everybody is high strung everybody's getting stressed out yes so it just wasn't a good year i think even now with classes being in person i might have enjoyed my first year a bit more but also it's just like everyone's taking the same courses this isn't what you came to university for yeah you're you're just trying to survive it and from, from everyone's account as you go on it gets better which is true so you hated it and the only reason you stuck through is because colby told you to keep going (laughs) Yeah, it's funny it's because everyone else, when I said, I, I think I might just like drop out and find something else. Everyone else was like, yeah, like do what you feel you need to. <laughs> he, he was on you and be like, that's the worst decision of your life. What are you doing? Don't do that. Uh, so I think overall, I'm very happy with my decision. It's been a great time, um, especially now. Like this is supposed to be my, my hardest year and I've been enjoying it even more. Um, I'm super excited for the high acuity, but by everyone's standards, that's the roughest one. Once we get through that though, um, fourth year is my easiest year and my third semester is, uh, is, is a bit more fun, even though it's mental health. When, when you're, when you're in mental health situation, you're trying to make everyone's day happy. So like, <laughs> I was asking like one student, so what did you do all day? And they're like, oh, we had a bocce ball tournament. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's like, that's what I'm looking forward to third semester. So I literally have like, essentially at this point, half a semester and one more to go. And then uh, fourth year is our public um, health, which could be as simple as I just go to the school. I'm the school nurse for that semester and i have to give that health talk presentation which we all received when we were children man you're on the home stretch then. I, i'm once i get to my third semester i'm in the home stretch yeah and then my uh last semester will be my practicum which is i'm just working full-time and as long as i don't mess anything up i'll be able to write the nclex and i'll be a nurse nice mm-hmm. 
So with this med surge that you were on before, mm -hmm. what made you love it so much? I think it was that specific floor. It was just so, you, you, you're such an impact in these people's lives because you tried your absolute best to try and get them up and moving to show that they would have um, potential to be able to go home or some people, their condition was just too deteriorated and uh, they had to go to long-term care. What Which, was the age range? Uh, generally 80. 80, I would say. That, that's kind of the defining factor. So uh, they're 80-year-olds and they're getting major surgery. Mm -hmm. And now you're deciding whether they're going to go home mm -hmm. or go long-term care. Yeah. So very much. And then also the rotations were really nice too for us because normally we do like either one day a week or two days a week. That one we had three days a week. So you're spending like half the week with these people. So you're, you're seeing them from day to day to day and you're seeing either, okay, is this person progressing? Are they deteriorating? And that was really cool. That's good continuity. Mm -hmm. I think that that's how it should be booked. Obviously casual um, lines are really common right now, which you just kind of take shifts as you need. But in terms of like the patient, I think just being there every day is super nice. Obviously that isn't, possible you can't just work every single day until a person goes home but it's really awesome to be able to see them from one day to the next to the next because people get better really quick they also deteriorate really quick and because you have that baseline because you're there with them then you can kind of assess what's got to be enjoyable to for you but also the patient where they are getting consistency mm -hmm. and they're getting to know somebody who's taking care of them because mm -hmm. that's got to be rough too having a new patient every single or sorry a new nurse every single day because now you don't know who you're getting what kind of mood they're in yeah whether your personalities are going to gel or not mm-hmm and that very much happens. You can walk into a room and you just say hi to the person and you're like, oh no, this isn't going to be great. But that first 15 seconds is so important. So what do you do to make sure that first 15 go well? Um, you mat match personality. That's what I've learned. You do not, because I've had patients where I've come in super happy and if they're just not having it this morning, who knows, maybe the phlebotomist came and woke them up for blood at 5 a.m. And then so another person came in at 6 a.m. to give them their meds. So just match their energy. If they're not happy, you don't be overly happy. <laughs> you, just, you just let them work through it. Maybe they'll have a nap. And then once you come back in and maybe they're a little bit more talkative, a little bit more happy, then you can kind of up it. But if you come in just super, yeah, this is going to be a great day, you're going to get shot down nine oh, out of ten you. times. Well, they've had 80 years to develop their personality mm -hmm. and also develop all the biases they might have. Mm -hmm. And they'll put you right in that slot. Yes. And obviously with you being a nursing student, it isn't, people aren't thrilled to have you, which <laughs> I find to be hilarious because example, today I'm going to go into the hospital at one o'clock and I'm going to receive my patient information. I'm going to study that till three or four tomorrow morning. Yeah. Like I'm going to be up all night studying this patient so that when I come in, I know as much as I humanly can. So you're going to do 14 hours on prep this, on this patient. And then, so the, most this is this is common. Most students do this, and I've ha I've had some of my colleagues go into the room first thing to be like hello, and they just look at them and they go, We're, "I'm not having a student today," which is totally it's the patients. But that's the assumption they make where this is the rookie. Yes, versus that little do you know this person just spent all night up. They could tell you 
when your birthday is, <laughs> what medications you are on, what your lab values were, like <laughs> any past, like your whole medical past, like they could, they'd be able to give you that. And yeah, I've seen like some students are quite uh, sad when that happens. Of uh, course. Of course. You're, you're just, you put in time. Um, who knows? Maybe that's just reflective of, of their experience with previous students. Um, everyone's different and... Ultimately, it's their choice. Yeah. So when you saw that dichotomy between somebody going home, Mm -hmm. somebody going long-term care, what was the commonality you saw with people that were going to go home? Uh, Mobility and will. So uh, first off, if you're you're, especially that age, your mobility is very much reflective of what your health outcome is going to be. And then will, because I don't want to say people get... Depre- the hospital setting can be depressive, uh, depressing for people. There isn't very much natural light. Um, and I think people, their will-wise just kind of gets grinded down. And that comes from years and years of living. Like if someone's spent the last 10 years now coming in and out of the hospital and stuff, it can be exhausting. But um, I think the people that just um, in their head are just like, nope, we're going to do this today. Physios giving me my exercises. I have to get them done. And are like just super determined. Uh, those are the people that generally get to continue to go home and stuff because you're continuing that fight. I've seen really sad cases in which like a patient's had that will, and then it's just one bad day, and they're like, you know what? Let's just go to long term care. If I'm generally, if someone goes into long term care, they don't come out. And I tried to, I've had to have that awkward conversation with this one person because they're like, oh yeah, it'll be fine. I'll just go there. And then two weeks I'll be out. And I was like, that's not happening. That's not happening. <laughs> um, so we're going to do our exercises today. <laughs> um, and I think eventually I was able to convince them to do it, but it's, it's that important. Um, that's what I learned when I was in my long term care rotation. Once you're in palliative care, the fight for independence that that's your number one goal because it could be as simple as okay i i'm not going to brush my teeth today can you brush them for me you're ne- you'll net they'll never brush their teeth again can you bring me my food to my room i don't feel like walking out there again you're not going to walk out to the kitchen area again like it, it's literally that straightforward even uh bathing at the uh, long-term care facility we had this like super nice bath like a lift thing that makes sure you get them in and out no problem they just had to make it there and i remember we had one patient who was just like can you can you just like so we do what's called a bed bath and at that point is what you just bathe them in the bath in the bed um isn't ideal but it's what's sounds better than none man sounds better than none <laughs> amen and i remember just being like if you don't get up to that bath you're gonna be laying in this bed till you go it's like that's the reality of them um so you really just try and motivate them come on you can do it like just just this time just for me so you really saw that if you don't use it you will lose it you literally lose it within a day if you do not use it you will lose it yeah there's a couple of those decisions in life where if you make that one it can cascade into many Mm -hmm. so it's kind of the same with fear if you turn back you're You're gonna gonna go on that diving board you turn back once Mm -hmm. oh man you think you're you think you're gonna do it now (laughs) yeah no it's uh even with like anxious moments too so like that was one thing with my little sister we, we really worked on is if you like don't do one thing because you get that feeling of anxiety, 
there's many more things. So we started with like super small things, like making her order for herself at the drive-through. <laughs> no, no kid enjoys, but we got her through that, and then just like keep exposing them to stuff. But that's there's a whole thing with psychology in that exposure therapy. Um, oh yeah, fun fact with that exposure therapy. Mm-hmm. I always thought you had to be calm when you exposed yourself to that. It actually oh, no. doesn't matter you just whether need, you're calm or you expose just, yourself. Yeah, you just <laughs> need to do it. That's where uh, that Nike line, just do it, really comes into play. Yeah, keep that forward motion going. Don't let the fear catch you. Mm-hmm. With kids, the best thing you can do for them, well, one is read to mm-hmm. them. But the second is get them to do something that's uncomfortable. So sign them up for a class mm-hmm. and they get that anxious feeling. And then have them overcome that anxious feeling. And if you keep doing that over and over again, that builds a resilient human. One thing, and who knows, this could just be me, but one thing I'm really noticing with while I'm at the children's hospital is the, the screen times, it, it's affecting people. Uh, I'm noticing very, I don't want to say antisocial behavior, but just like not your common interactive, like almost like developmental delays. And I'm wondering if it's from screen time. I'd really be curious to like look into it and stuff like that. Because uh, I'll give one example. I was like super excited to like go in and uh, hang out with this one patient. They had like video games on. So I was going to like try and start that conversation. And this could just be this kid. So I was like, hey, how are you doing today? And they're just like looking on their phone. It was just like, good. And I was like. What kind of games are you playing? And he just like sighs. He goes, what do you want? (laughs) Oh, man. Like, well, currently, I guess I'll just go get your medication. Oh, damn. Uh, And who knows? It could have just been that child. But I, I, I mentioned this to my mom and she said, but every generation says the same thing about like the next generation coming up. It's just like, I'm just curious to see what this constant screen exposure is going to do for children yeah well the printing press was supposed to ruin our memory oh so it might honestly just be we think that and then kids grow up and they're totally fine yeah that's still to be seen though Mm -hmm. because there's kids that i was talking to the 16 year old he was saying a lot of his friends can't watch tv because it's too long or it's not enough stimulation so yeah. they'll turn the tv on and then they'll grab their phone and start scrolling mm-hmm. even uh at the worst of it is if I, I don't have tiktok anymore but they'll actually have two videos playing simultaneously so it'll be like one person talking but then there also will be like subway surfer below it <laughs> and, and, and like you it will mess up your well everything really your dopamine your attention span like well, that's really, we're not used to that level of stimulation. No. Because if you think about it, when you're watching a movie, every time that camera cuts, your brain has to reorientate. Mm-hmm. When does that happen in real life? No. So a movie cuts, but mm-hmm. then now if you're endlessly scrolling. You're, how, just, you're always on to the next thing. Yeah. Your brain's reorientating, reorientating, reorientating. Mm-hmm. So what's the age range you're dealing with in pediatrics? Um, wide open. It could be all the way from 28 days to um, 17 years old. That's, That's a big range. It's a big range. And any, so example, when I'm on med surge, there's like 
four or five super common surgeries. Everybody's getting knee replacement, hip replacement, stuff like that. So you're seeing the same stuff, same stuff, same medications. Pediatrics, as long as they're, it doesn't matter what they're in. It could be anything from heart problems to lung to like, it's just such a wide range. And I do really enjoy that aspect of pediatrics because as long as they're in between that age range, they're coming to us. And so what procedures are you doing on these kids? What's um, happening? The, because I'm a student, it's a little limited, but I've been doing a bunch of like IV pulls, which has been a really fun process. You just take this like adhesive uh, remover and then you like start rubbing away on the bandaid. And then I always like to do this like fun little trick with them. I'll be telling them, I'll be like, I've done six of these today and no one's cried. You're not going to be the one to do it. You're not going to be the first one. Okay. And then I'll be like, look at mom. And, and then I pull it. And as they're looking and they don't even notice, um, cause it's not painful. It's just in your vein. There's no pain receptors there. So you just pull it out and you're done. Put on some gauze, um, tell them they did a good job. So a lot of those, um, wound, wound cleaning. So people who've had surgery, uh, take off the bandage. We do a, a Rita assessment and then what's uh, a Rita. What is that? Is that an uh, acronym? Yeah. So, uh, redness, ecchymosis, edema, drainage, and approximation. So that's just what we're assessing for when we're st- looking at the wound and then clean it. Um, the ban- bandaging is where it, they allow nursing to get creative because there isn't actually like any set way that you have to bandage something. So we get to like... You can, you can <laughs> Wait, go, in the textbook, there's no set way? No, you can just kind of like tape as you want <laughs> because everyone's different and every wound is in a different spot and stuff. So they, they give you the creativity and that part's fun. You get, to, right. you get to do it a little different than your other colleague. Your other colleague does a little different than them. And Gotcha. So this redness and then ecchymosis? Oh, just bruising. And then what was the second uh, one? Edema, so swelling. Edema, yeah. Drainage. So uh, there's three or four different kinds of drainage. Um, and if that's seen, you just document how much is on it. And we document based on what's on the actual bandage, not what's coming out. That's how we characterize drainage. And then approximation. So how does the actual like wound edges look? So if you're dealing with a surgery, uh, sorry, surgical procedure, um, oftentimes it's quite clean, like surgeons they do a good job um versus we do have more complex wounds and those are often trauma wounds um and those can be a bit of a different process we actually use a different um whole criteria for assessing them um and then we also have a fantastic thing called a wound care team so there there are some wounds that like i've heard stories of like people with like whole skin removed on their hip and stuff like that you can just you can see bone and muscle and how everything moves essentially you get a free anatomy course um and those people are amazing because they do a fantastic job uh dealing with that so they have a specific team that will come Mm -hmm. same with like the trauma team has uh has a stroke team. They have a, a code blue. So if someone's like heart stops being, they have a team for that. Um, it's kind of funny because we're, we're kind of super blessed being at RUH. Um, cause I was like, Oh, I hope like one day I would get on the code team. But like, if you go work in the rural, the one doctor and the two or three nurses on shift, that is your code team. There isn't like a, like set aside designation. Um, once you get into that rural mess and stuff gets really interesting and really cool. Um, I'll definitely do one stint on rural and see if I like it or not. Oh, um, you get to decide. So for our practicum, 
you can end up anywhere in the province. Um, so the girl I was talking to that I worked with my last shift, she got sent up to North Battleford. Um, and that's just something you have to be aware of. Um, What's the most intense wound you've seen? Uh, I'm not going to give the story up to it, but axe wound. Where was this on the body? Um, be t- I can't give too much detail gotcha, on this gotcha. because so, only so many people are getting attacked with an axe. <laughs> Makes sense. What do you do with an axe wound? Um, so with an uh, with that specific wound, uh, you can. It's quite deep. So like, I could put my whole hand, yeah, into it. Um, and with that, you're feeling for like tunneling. So, uh, example, there'll be tunnels off of the actual main wound and you'll have to take like two fingers and like go up yeah reach up in there and try and trying to assess how deep it is that you, you you find out what you can and can't do and you have to do that what's the patient doing during this just in there how are they not feeling this what's going on dilaudid's an amazing thing <laughs> what mm-hmm. so you put them full of dilaudid they, they're already there because if they weren't if they weren't on so much Dilaudid that they couldn't feel me reaching in, they'd be feeling the pain from just the actual wound. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. So that's another big thing with uh, nursing is pain management because doctors aren't there all the time. So we are gauging their pain. And example, if I know this patient has physio um, coming in to work on them in an hour, I'm going to prep their dose and give it to them now so that they won't be feeling anything for when they have to need to be mobile and stuff like that. So that's a big aspect of nursing as well. So what's a lesson you've learned in your three years of nursing? Um, every, every single person's different. Every social, every person has a different social situation going on. Um, and you just got to be mindful of that. Everyone has a different day this day. Everyone has a different what? A different day this day. What does that mean? So everyone is experiencing today differently. So example, we right now are um, talking and filming podcasts. Someone else right now just got into the worst car accident of their life and probably won't walk again. Everyone's day is different. And um, just even just people in general are different. So um, you just come with an open mind every single day and just try and make that person's day the best day because for some of these people this is the worst day of their life Mm -hmm. yeah and you can have an effect on that person that day hopefully a positive impact um every day you that's what you pray for you pray you never have a negative impact on somebody but there's gonna be that day yeah i got you all right man what should we call it yeah this was great